<clears throat> well, we've been um, in our small groups. We've um, our group on Wednesday nights. Our group has been looking at a book uh, by Martin Lloyd Jones that's uh, entitled uh, "Enjoying the Presence of God." And in that book, he takes um, a look at several psalms and. This last week was one on Psalm 63, which dealt with um, adversity in the life of the Christian. And uh, so I got to thinking about that um, this week as I was reading through that portion uh, in, in that book. I started thinking about this area of trials and adversity and testing in the life of the believer in particular. Uh, but in general, um, it's something that affects everybody, um, <clears throat> trials and tests and adversity. Uh, there's a verse in Psalm 11, it's verse 5, it says, His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. So all men are confronted with these tests these, this adversity in their life. You know, we look in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount there in chapter 5, verse 45. Um, the Lord said uh, that the, the Father causes the rain and the sun to come upon all men, the righteous and the unrighteous. So all men uh, faith, experience this blessings from God. But also all men are confronted with adversity and you know that because you're confronted with it you face it uh, some adversity is greater than other adversities um, <clears throat> some adversity is um, physical adversity physical trials that you're going through uh, some in the body those types of physical trials I can testify that uh, as you get older those trials tend to increase Physical trials of the body. Um, I, I, knew, I know somebody who, who says that, or has said many times, well, if we have our health, we have everything. So when difficult times would come up, that's what they would fall back on. Well, we have our health, we have everything. Well, I'm telling you that that's not going to be true in a few years if it's, if it's not already true for you. Because your health will fail you. And so you're going to be confronted with this adversity, this trial. Um, and Peter, in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. He wants us to be aware that this isn't something unusual. This isn't something strange. This is something that's going to happen. There's a certainty to it. James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. When you encounter various trials, it's going to happen. And you can, I'm sure, testify today that it has happened or is happening right now in your life. Trials, testings. Um, you know, we can have, <clears throat> there can be emotional trials, there can be physical trials, but for the Christian, there's an additional trial, and that's the testing of your faith that comes upon you as a Christian, as a believer. 
that there's you have the the whole of of the fallen world attacking you in your unbelief. The world is constantly trying to tear down your faith in Christ. The Satan, the enemy of our soul, is constantly on the prowl to tear down your faith. So in a in a sense, the Christian has this other added testing, this other added trial that comes upon them. And what I wanted to do today is I wanted to look at, as I was thinking about this, um, what is the reason, what is the purpose that God lays out in his word for testings or trials or adversity in our lives? He does give us some specific things about that. And obviously this isn't exhaustive, but it's just some things that came to my mind. So I have a few reasons or purposes for testing. And in particular, I'm thinking of the testing of the believer, the Christian. Trials that come into our lives, and how do we respond to it, and what can we take from it? You know, if we if we see the big picture of what God's purpose is in some of these trials and tests... It can be a great help for us when we're going through them, in the midst of them, that we're not just swamped over and saying, why is this happening to me? We have some idea, some reasons for what God has laid out in his word of why he allows his people and sometimes causes his people to go through these things. Sometimes we we don't understand, most of the time I would say, we don't understand it in the midst of it. We're just overwhelmed with it. It comes on you like a flood, and you're just kind of, you're washed over with it. And you find yourself in the midst of it, and you're going, what's going on here? Some of it is very intense. Some of it is very personal. All of it's personal, but some of it personal in the sense that it hits you right um, in a way that, that nothing else can, can affect you like that. It, it, it wrenches your gut. It may be a trial that a loved one's going through that you're, you're entering into vicariously. You're, you're part of it, and it's affecting you in that way. It may be something personal in your own life, but there's, there's reasons God allows his people to go through these testings and these trials. So I have several reasons I wanted to look at and um, <clears throat> the first one I would say is, is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So let's just turn there. I have a lot of scriptures I'm going to read. I, I, some of them I'll just read to you because don't, you don't need to be flipping through um, a lot of uh, passages here because I can read them to you. They're short. But this one I want, uh, to, um, want you to turn to this one. <clears throat> Uh, Let's start at verse 1 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. All the commandment that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand 
that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And then he goes on and he tells them that he gave them food when they were hungry. He gave them clothing that didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. He kind of enumerates some of the things that transpired in the wilderness there. <clears throat> and this was, and he says that this was a test. This was their t- a test for them. And then he gets down to uh, verse... Um, Verse 11, he says, he's, oh, he tells them that he's going, to, he's going to prosper them and he's going to bring them into the land. And he says, beware lest you forget, after you come into the land, that is, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Now, sometimes God will bless you, and that's a test. And that's the case, and he does that specifically to tells Hezekiah that he prospered Hezekiah. And it was a test for him to see what, how he would respond to prosperity. In this case, it's a test they were, that he withheld from them. They had to go hungry. He humbled them, and then he provided for them. But look in verse 16. In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. And I love that verse. Because for his people, his testing is always to do good for us in the end. That's the end result of the test for the Christian. But in the process, he tests us to see what's in our heart. You know, you don't always know what's in your heart. You think you know what's in your heart. But there's things that come out of you in certain situations that the test reveals. It's like when you heat metal and there's impurities in there and the dross rises to the top and they skim it off so that what's left is pure. There's stuff in you that's still unpure, impure. And those tests reveal attitudes as you, as you face those things. The heat's turned up and you realize there's still attitudes in me that aren't right. And God uses the test to reveal to you. He knows what's there. But he's using that test to reveal to you what's in there so that you can see it, so that you can repent of it, so that he can skim it off. So that there's a pure, more of a purity there in, in your walk with God, in your devotion to him, in your relationship with other people. That there isn't this selfishness, this self-centeredness, this self-serving attitude. It turns up the heat a little bit. And that's one of the purposes of tests, is to reveal what's in us so that we can see it, so that we can repent of it, so that we can move on. <clears throat> Another um, area of testing is, uh, if you look in uh, Zechariah, which is near the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 13. This is a prophecy of the Lord, but um, chapter uh, chapter 13 and verse 7 um, through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. 
and I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through fire, refined that refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. This is the Lord doing that to his people. <clears throat> that they will call on my name. That's what we sang. I will call upon the name of the Lord. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say this is my God. <clears throat> so one of the tests, the results or the purposes of a test that God uses in our lives is to draw us to himself so that we will seek him and that we will be able to say, you are my God, you are my God. And this is what we looked at this last week in Psalm 63. Um, And in this psalm, I'll just give you a little uh, background on it from Martin Lloyd-Jones. This psalm was a psalm that was written by David um, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And the situation, the reason he was in the wilderness in Judah was that his son Absalom was in pursuit of him to kill him. Now that's a trial. That's a test. That's great adversity when your flesh and blood is out to kill you. And that's what the situation was here in the wilderness with with, uh, David. And this is how he starts the psalm. O God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee, my flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise thee. So I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift my hands up in thy name. My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember thee on my bed, I meditate on thee in the night watches, for thou hast been my help, and in the shadow of thy wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to thee. Thy right hand upholds me. So you see the picture here is a man who is really hungering after, thirsting after God. And it's physically, literally a dry and weary land, but spiritually for him it was also because of this trial, this test of his own son trying to kill him. And what does it cause David to do? It causes him to flee to God, run to God, draw near to God. And uh, Lloyd-Jones mentions in there that that's one of the purposes that always happens for true Christians. If you're really a believer, when a trial comes, you're drawn to God. Think about it in your own life. When you've really experienced trials, is it difficult for you, really difficult for you to pray about those things? You know, I have found personally that when there's a real trial... Um, particularly in, in my life or in the life of someone I really love, it seems like it's much easier for me to f- get down and pray 
pray for that situation. It, it, it just, I want to pray. I want to be, I want to draw near to God. He's the one that can help. And so adversity, trials, draw us to God. Another thing that you see in trials, and we saw it here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, <clears throat> was that God provides trials and, give, and brings trials into our life so that he can demonstrate to us his faithfulness. He wants to demonstrate to his people that he is faithful. And so he, he is faithful in those trials. And that's what it says there in um, Deuteronomy 8.16. To do them good. He brought the trial there to test them. To do them good in the end. That's, that's what he wants to do. And you see that reflected in the children of Israel there in the wilderness. You see it reflected in, in uh, Job in his life. Think of Job's life where God had blessed Job and then Satan comes. He allows Satan to come in and wreak havoc in, in Job's life. He takes all of his children are, are killed. Um, his property is, is looted and destroyed. His physical body, he's afflicted with boils. And so he, he's under tremendous, tremendous trial. And then to top it all off, he's got his friends who come to him and say, now the reason this is happening, buddy, is because you've sinned. And he knows he hasn't in that regard. The, these trials weren't brought there because of his sin. God allowed this testing to take place. And in the end, what happens to Job in the end, and even in the middle of it, Job says some things that he repents of at the end of Job. Sometimes when you're in the midst of the trial, you may say some things. You may do some things that you're going to regret later. And Job does that, and he repents of those things. But the, the trial is very intense. But in the end, and that's the key, in the end, what happens? Job, the Lord reveals himself to Job, and Job repents, and the Lord turns around and does him good in the end. He, he blesses him abundantly in the end. Because God is not going to allow you to be tempted, tested, beyond what you're able. As a believer, he's not going to allow that. And so he's, he, he, he upholds us in the midst of the test. And it's wonderful to think about that God allows tests to draw us close, to show us what's in our hearts, that we can clean it up, we can repent of it, and, and ask God to forgive us and cleanse us. And then he, he uses them to draw us to himself, to produce in us uh, a thankfulness to him because he's demonstrated his faithfulness to us. And we're, our, our hearts are overflowing then with gratitude to him. So that's the third way, to demonstrate his faithfulness to his people. <clears throat> In 1 Peter chapter three or chapter 1, I'm going to read this. This is a, a portion of scripture that's uh, about six verses I want to read to you. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. God is going to give a, provide tests for us so that it's a proof that our faith is real. 
It's a testing of our faith to, pr- to prove to us that it's real. It's not something superficial. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So he says that our faith is tested like you would test gold, but gold is perishable and the faith isn't. That's, you know, that's a lasting thing. It's interesting that um, what Matthew Henry says about this section of scripture. He says that Christ prays for Peter, this apostle, that his faith may not fail. And remember when Christ did that? It was in Luke 22. He prayed that his faith wouldn't fail. And that when he turned to strengthen the brethren, but he, he prays that his faith wouldn't fail. That his faith might not fail. If that be supported, Matthew Henry says, all the rest will stand firm. The faith of good people is tried, that they themselves may have comfort of it, God the glory of it, and others the benefit of it. And then he goes on to say, the trial of faith is much more precious than the trial of gold. In both, there is a purification, which we talked about, a separation of the dross, and a discovery of the soundness and the goodness in the things. So as you, it's interesting, as you remove that dross, you see the substance, the purity, the the soundness, he says, of the thing. Gold does not increase and multiply by trial in the fire. It grows rather less. In other words, you take on away the gold. You're skimming off the dross, and what's left is less. He says that's not so with faith. <clears throat> but faith is established and improved and multiplied by the oppositions and the afflictions that it meets with God. Gold must perish at last. Gold that perishes, it says. But faith never will. And then he ends it by saying, the Lord has prayed, I pray thee that your faith fail not. So here you have gold. It uses the analogy of gold, but there is, it breaks down because gold decreases in its substance as you purify it. 
Faith increases in its substance as it's purified. It gets stronger. It gets better. It gets more. There's more of it. It's purer, and it increases. So it's really a a kind of a neat analogy and comparison between faith and gold. But it's that purification process. And what one of the purposes that God allows tests and trials and adversity to come into our life is to demonstrate to us that the faith is real. It's not superficial. It's something that's going to stand the test. You see, if it's superficial faith, it's not going to stand the test. It's going to fall. Whatever you're trusting in, what are you trusting in? See, it's, going to, it's not going to last. And if you're a believer, and you can, you can be a believer and begin to rely on certain other things in your mind about how you're going to finagle this and work this out, and you begin looking at other things. If you're a believer, what God does is he just kicks those props out from under you. And you're cast upon him. And you fall, fall into his arms. And you realize that he can hold you. He's worth it. He, he is able to sustain you in the midst of the trial. You've been struggling to hold on and make it through the trial. You've been really struggling. And then you cast yourself upon God and you see that he carries you through it. You go through it. But your faith is purified as you trust him in it. And it's strengthened. And as James says, and this is the fifth point, as James says, it produces in you endurance, a steadiness, a continuing on. That's what what this testing does. That's why when James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The test isn't something that's enjoyable. It's not something that's comfortable or it's not a test. I mean, just by the nature of what it is, a test, the heat's turned up. It's not a comfortable situation. How can you be joyful in that situation? Well, you can't if you're just looking at the situation. You've got to look beyond the situation. If there's going to be, if you can count it as joy, You've got to look past this situation. And one of the things that you can look past and see is that God is working in me to strengthen my faith through this trial. And he's producing in me endurance because that's what the scripture says. He's producing that in the believer. And so we have this encouragement that when we're in the midst of the trial... God isn't going to leave us. In fact, he's he's put us in the trial to demonstrate his faithfulness. As we draw near to him, he demonstrates his, his loving kindness to us and his faithfulness. And he strengthens us, he strengthens our faith, and he enables us to endure and get through that as we look to him. Sometimes when you're in the midst of trials, you have, and most of the time, I said earlier, you have no idea of what's going on. But God's got a bigger picture of what he's doing. <clears throat> Sometimes he, you are entering into, in the, in the trial that you're in, in the adversity that you're going through, you're entering into the bigger picture of what God has in his plan, what he's working out, and you don't see it. You don't understand it. And all you can say is, God, I don't understand what's going on. But 
You do, and I'm casting myself upon you. A good example of that is in the life of Joseph. Joseph had no idea of why he was going through the trials he was going through. Here he's got, in in Genesis, you read about Joseph in Genesis 37. His brothers are jealous of him. And because they're jealous of him, they decide they're going to sell him into slavery to get him out of the picture. And then they're going to lie to their father and say he was killed. And they, they, they fabricate this lie about Joseph being killed when, in fact, they, they sold him into slavery into Egypt. He gets into slavery in Egypt and he finds favor. God's hand is still upon him. And he finds favor with God and he finds favor with Potiphar. He's sold to Potiphar. And he faithfully goes about doing what he's supposed to do as Potiphar's servant. And lo and behold, Potiphar's household begins to prosper. And then Potiphar's wife begins to bring a false accusation against Joseph because she was angry with him. And so she brings this false accusation against Joseph and Potiphar hasn't put in prison. Another trial. So here he is, doing what's right, resisting the temptation and doing what's right, honoring, honoring Potiphar, not willing to enter into that relationship with his wife. She's trying to seduce him and he refuses to do that. And because he's faithful to Potiphar and the wife lies, Potiphar throws him in prison. So now he's in prison for doing what's right. Another trial, adversity, and God blesses him and he finds favor with the jailer. So then he gets, as the story goes, he gets released and he becomes ultimately second in command of all of Egypt. And so now he has some power, he has some authority. And in chapter 45, um, or it's actually a little bit before chapter 45, his brothers come because there's a famine in the land and they're coming to get some, some grain from Egypt to buy grain. So let's pick it up in Genesis 45 and see what uh, the response is of Joseph. Now keep in mind, this is a young man who is a little brash when he was younger, and telling his brothers that they're going to bow down to him and all that sort of thing, and he's the young one. Uh, and so they, there were some um, reasons why they didn't care for Joseph and were upset with him. But nonetheless, his brothers sold him into slavery. And this is Joseph's response to his brothers as he reveals who he is. They don't even recognize him. So a number of years have passed since they sold their little brother into slavery. Now we stand on in verse 45 or chapter 45 verse 1. This is where he's about to reveal who he he is to his brothers. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him and he cried, "Have everyone go out from me." So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brother could not answer him. 
For this they were, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. See his attitude? It wasn't any kind of resentment to his, uh, about, with his brothers at all. What he saw was that there was something in this that he had no idea the trial that, was go- that he was going through. In the midst of it, he had no idea that God was allowing this to happen in his life so that he would be the deliverer for his family. Now that's what's happened for some of you. God's put you through some trials, spiritually, some trials, that you might eventually be the deliverer for your families. Now, you aren't the ultimate deliverer, but you're the instrument. God's put you there. Now you're the instrument to be praying for him. And he's allowed some trials in your life along those lines. But you're instrumental now in the salvation of your families. That's what happened here. God allowed Joseph to go through these things, hard things. These aren't easy things. You know, we read these stories. It's good sometimes to put yourself, personalize it, put yourself in this situation. Your brothers have sold you into slavery. You've told the truth. You've honored your employer, Potiphar, and his wife lied, and you get thrown in prison for doing what's right. You're thrown in prison. Now you think about discouragement. That's, that's very discouraging. And yet in the end, remember that? In the end, in the end, God's going to show himself what he's done. God's going to show himself what he has done. God orchestrates this stuff. Trials don't just haphazardly happen in your life. God's orchestrating things in your life to produce things in you and through you that are going to have an effect on people around you. And that's what's happening here. So <clears throat> we don't know. We don't know what's, what God's doing. But we do know that he's got bigger purposes than just Jim Kelly. He's got his purposes, and he may use you. And he will use you if you're a Christian. And he will use those trials to draw you to himself, to demonstrate his faithfulness to you, to um, strengthen you, that you can endure, and then to be able to be used in the lives of others, in the salvation of others. And if you look at, that's what, uh, in um, 2 Corinthians, he talks about... Blessed be the God, I'll just read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, when you go through a trial and God comforts you, he comes in and he helps you, he meets with you, he strengthens you, he reveals himself in a fresh way to you, you're able then when someone else, in the midst of your trial, this, ha- this happens, in the midst of while you're going through it, someone else may be going through it at the same time. And the way you go through it strengthens them and encourages them and supports them. And then afterwards you've been through it. You're able to be a, a minister of good to the people around you if they're going through the similar types of trials. So there's, there's things in here besides just you getting through it. God wants you to be, get through it, and you will, and he wants you to be used after the fact to, to be an encouragement and a support for others as you go through the trial. And then finally, in this area that I came up with, it's not finally, but um, my last point, <clears throat> God is using this to prepare us, the trials that you're going through right now, God is using to prepare you for something else. Not just to minister to others, but to prepare you for himself. He's preparing you for himself. <clears throat> Romans 8, 28 we know, and 29, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. Conformity to the image of Christ. That's what God's doing in the trials that you're going through. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, the trials that you're going through are to conform you to the image of Christ. Christ went through trials. You're going to go through trials, and you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ to prepare you to be with him forever. So that's, those are the eight points that, that, I've, that I kind of came up with as far as that I feel like the Scripture is... I got out of the Scripture in these areas. He wants to reveal what's really in us, so that we can get rid of the stuff that's, un, that's unclean, uh, get our hearts right, get, get pure motives and things. So he brings things to light and, and allows those trials to do that. He allows the trials to demonstrate his faithfulness to his people and to draw us close to him and to strengthen us and to help us to endure so that we can be a minister to others and to prepare us for glory. Now, question is, what do you do in the midst of it? And this is short. I'm not going to belabor this, but what do you do when you're in the midst of it? And there's one section in particular in the scripture that's a really a great, great resource, I think, when you're in the midst of a trial. And... Uh, it's the prayer of Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And I want to read portions of it. I don't want to read the whole prayer because it is quite lengthy. But I would encourage you to read the prayer of Jehoshaphat in 
Second Chronicles. But let's just turn there, and I just want to close with <clears throat> this one encouragement to you. How should you respond when you're in the midst of these trials that are assaulting you and you find yourself overwhelmed and you sometimes find yourself paralyzed? Um, and what do I do? <clears throat> Let's start in verse 1. And I'm going to jump around a little bit because it goes. The, it really goes all the way over to um, probably 24 but we're not going to read it all. Now it came about after this, this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon together with some of the Minyanites came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Syria and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, Engad. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord <clears throat> and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. And then Jehoshaphat kind of puts out his petition that... Um, that these country, these other areas, these other kings are coming to attack him, and they begin to seek God, and he brings up in his prayer that how powerful God is, that He's able. He brings to his memory God. That's who he brings. He doesn't. He doesn't dwell on the men, the armies that are coming against him. He mentions them, but that's not where he's dwelling. He reminds himself of the powerfulness of God and reminds God of his past mercies that he's demonstrated to him. <clears throat> and then you get down uh, in verse 12. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do but our eyes are on thee. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Matani, and Levite, the, Levite, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. And then he goes on and they, they describe how the enemies are defeated. But I just want to emphasize this. <clears throat> We can't get our eyes in the midst of the trial on the trial itself. We have to get our eyes past the trial itself and on the God who is above the trial and bigger than the trial. That's where our focus has to be. And there are times in, in trials in your life that are going to be overwhelming and you don't know what to do. 
and the adversary is going to be pressing in on you and you don't know what to do. And this is what he's saying here. We're powerless. I can't get myself out of this fix. I've tried to get myself out of some, but I can't get myself out of this fix. There's nothing I can do. I'm powerless before this great multitude. And I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And see, that's really the the issue. Where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? In the midst of the trial, where are your eyes? They, they need, if you're going to get help in the midst of the trial, your eyes have to be fixed on Christ. They have to be looking to Christ. And if they are, the trial will come, the trial will pass, and you will be standing firm in your faith, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, drawing closer to God, able to help those who are also going through trials similar to you, and being conformed more and more to the image of Christ and be with him forever. Why don't we pray?